welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Daniel Kanema and Dr. Jacinta Dell Hayes. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Welcome to episode 52. And this week we are joined by Dr. Jack Radcliffe from the University of Pretoria. And we'll be giving you a behind the behind the scenes look at world class astronomy. And we'll be discussing <laughs> <laughs> we'll be discussing mental health. Yeah, so Jack is gonna tell us a bit about his work that he does with VLBI, very long baseline interferometry, uh, a bit about his PhD, his work with the SKA preparations, and also about DARA, the development in Africa with radio astronomy that he works with to teach students about radio astronomy. But mostly we're going to do quite a deep dive into our personal stories, the three of us, about mental health and mental health in astronomy and in academia in particular. It's a particularly important topic to talk about for everybody because our minds are our greatest tool. And in academia specifically, we're kind of paid to think essentially. And so you can't do that unless your mind is well. And so it's definitely important to make absolutely sure that your mind is in the the best condition that it can be, just as it's important to make sure that your body is in the best condition it can be. So this episode is going to be talking a lot about mental health. So we'd just like to give a trigger warning about some of the topics involved and we will be sharing our own experiences and there will be a brief mention of self-harm. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, as you said, it's an incredibly important thing, not just in academia, for everyone to to take care of themselves, of their own mental health. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it with Jack, but both myself and, and you have had our mental health challenges. And, you know, it's it's very important that we are able to speak about it and share that. And hopefully in doing so, we can we can make it a little bit easier for others to seek help and to feel a little bit more comfortable with some of the challenges they're facing. Absolutely. And we're both quite passionate about that now, but this is actually the first time that we've spoken about these things publicly, which is not a problem, but we just aren't quite super eloquent at it yet. (laughs) Uh, So bear with us as we, as we kind of try and explain our stories and also just to stress that we are not experts on mental health. So please do take the advice of um, mental health experts and your doctors and specialists um, when it comes to issues like these. So I think without further ado, let's hear from Jack. With us today, we have Dr. Jack Radcliffe, who is a lecturer at the University of Pretoria. Welcome, Jack. Hi, Jacinta. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me on the podcast been good to be on here I've, I've listened to many episodes so um i'm glad to to finally contribute for it oh great oh we've got a we've got a listener too as well as a guest wonderful <laughs> well welcome on the podcast uh, so jack you're at the university of pretoria uh perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about your path into astronomy and what you're working on sure yeah so i'm a lecturer at the university of pretoria at the moment um, and i'm also affiliated with the university of manchester i 
I'm originally from Manchester, so you may need to put subtitles on this podcast because I have a, a strong northern accent. Um, in South Africa, I've been called Australian or uh, uh, from New Zealand a few times <laughs> because of it. Excuse me? <laughs> <Sadly. laughs> so, yeah, and then I did my PhD in, in Manchester and Groningen in a joint degree before moving down here to Pretoria to do a postdoc and then, and then became a lecturer here where I teach observational astronomy. So my, my general work is around accreting supermassive black holes and how they influence the, the galaxies around them. And this is typically using radio arrays. So that includes Meerkat, but also includes telescopes all around the world working as one. So you work on something called VLBR. We've spoken about VLBR a couple of times and a sort of similar long baseline project which we talked about a while ago was the Event Horizon Telescope. So we know that using these very long baselines we get very high resolution images. So when you're doing your your research, that's what you're using? Yeah, essentially. We use similar telescopes to the Event Horizon Telescope except we're looking at a slightly different frequency and we're looking at objects which are typically further away. But the great thing about VLBI is that for, for our work, it allows us to, to see through all the dust and all of the stars being formed, which also produce radio emission. And we can see that central supermassive black hole without any of these issues blocking us. So that's, that's why we, we use VLBI to select these objects. And by finding all the black holes, we hopefully can then infer how those black holes will cause the galaxies to evolve. Do they make more star help make more stars or do they hinder it? That's the one of the big questions. There's thousands of astronomers working on that same problem. Yeah, so um, you and I both work on radio galaxies, Jack, and galaxy evolution. I kind of look out at a zoomed out kind of version and you look at a very zoomed in version of, I guess, within the galaxy itself to try and see, as you were saying, that black hole in the centre. What do you actually see? when? You, what does it look like when you see these things? Well, we always have a, a bit of a joke when we do when we do VLBI is it's a bit like blobology. So we just end up with a, a blob in the centre, which is from the radio mission around the black hole. but in some of the work that we do, we, we try and combine this field BI telescope with other telescopes around the world so that we can see not just the central black hole, but also these jets that are emanating within the galaxy. And that's one of these key drivers to see whether these jets moving at your relativistic speed, so near the speed of light, is going to cause, is basically going to influence how the stars are going to be formed in that galaxy. So you're originally from Manchester, I assume you and you've got an affiliation still with Manchester. So the, the Square Kilometre Array, which is coming soon, is, is based at Jodrell Bank uh, in Manchester. And I assume you're going to be working very closely with the SKA. Yes, yes, definitely. I already work fairly closely with them. And one of the roles here that, that we are trying to do eventually is to get Meerkat involved in the VLBI arrays. So for VLBI arrays, I think in, you may have said in your previous podcast, these telescopes are spread across kilometers and because Meerkat is currently the the best interferometer around most sensitive sees more of the sky than most others getting that as part of your your array adds great sensitivity and we can see further and deeper see the faintest black holes and see how they're going to be influencing their galaxies so that's 
one of the key drivers for me here in, in South Africa is both to do this for Meerkat and then eventually to get SK involved in, in getting this ultra high resolution imaging. You say uh, you're lecturing observational astronomy at the University of Pretoria. I don't know much about Pretoria. Is there a large astronomy department there? We only started the group in 2018. And essentially, the university decided that they wanted to, to start getting involved with the SKA. So now there's a kind of concerted effort to build up astronomy in, in UP, but also to build up the astronomy groups in Hauteng as well. So the majority of astronomy groups in South Africa and Cape Town. So we're, we're trying to build up this kind of triangle between WITS and UP and, and UJ so that we can build these groups up and, and build also the astronomers there that will be able to exploit the data that the SK will do. Because yeah, it's a it's an African adventure and we want to make sure that you know, we get this pipelines of students who can then use this data and, and be the next generation of, of discoverers of, of these amazing new things. Like, as Jacinta has recently published with these giant radio galaxies, we're seeing stuff we've never seen before. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of um, the sort of the African network, you are involved with um, teaching astronomy across Africa and there's something called DARA, is that correct? Yes, yes, that's right. So this is the development in Africa radio astronomy, which is a human capital development. So the SK has eight partner countries in Africa. And the issue is that we need to have telescopes up the, the spine of Africa to, to make our imaging much better and, and high resolution to complement the SK. So for us to do this, we need to have interferometry experts, people who can operate the telescope. So over the last, it's going to be seven years now, and Dara is just about to finish. So it finishes in literally 15 days. We go and teach uh, students how to go from, go from data from your telescope to science-ready images. And the, the goal is that, that these students go back and build up their groups in their home country, and then we have experts on the ground and a nice pipeline of students from Africa who then can basically make all these discoveries, build their networks. And, and the key thing with all of this as well is most people go, okay, well, we, we're pumping all this money into the SK, how's this gonna benefit us? And many of these students who do DARA, for example, can go back and build their mobile phone networks in their home countries. They're not ever gonna be tied into astronomy. So that's kind of some of the goals of, of this project is that there's kind of offshoots as well, not just for the astronomy group, but for the, the economic development of these countries too. So um, you're heavily involved in students, as, you, as you've said. And one of the reasons we wanted to get you on today and speak with you is you've recently uh, spoken a little bit about mental health, particularly in students, and you know how you can deal with doing your PhD, which... Uh, I think we can all agree is is quite a, a difficult time in your life. What got you interested in in mental health and choosing to speak about it? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. So um, during during my PhD, I, I struggled with mental health. So for for context, I had nine months off my PhD where I had what we would call generalized anxiety disorder, and I. I don't mind talking about it because I think that's the first step in, in making this normalized. And, you know, lots of the time there used to be a taboo on mental health. And over the kind of the last couple of decades, this taboo has been slowly edging away. And 
so I kind of wanted to to get it out there, get my experience out there. And and if I just help at least one person, you know, on the road to recovery, then all that effort is worth it for me. So I really wanted to make this conversation more normal because you see people who would never speak up about it, but when they see other people who who have been able to say what what their issue was or give some tips on this, it you know it might persuade them to do this, and you know that it's quite sad because the the one of the biggest causes of death in in especially young men is suicide. You know, sixteen to thirty year olds that would that's one of the leading causes of, of death in them and and not that they didn't want to go and get help but it's difficult to make that first step so that's one of my reasons to to try and speak up about this and, and normalize that conversation thanks very much for sharing that insight jack i think it's as you said extremely important and part of the reason why we wanted to do this episode because i also have experienced significant mental health problems you know i guess uh, it was building up during my phd there's about six months of my life where I don't really remember after I finished my PhD. And then it kind of continued on for the next five years until finally it hit to a point where I, I guess you could call it a big a breakdown. And I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and, you know, then had a very long recovery period. So it's also something close to my heart. I wish that I had heard more conversations about it um, many years ago so that there are many things I could have done to avoid the depths. And also, yeah, just to normalise it, to, to tell other people that particularly in what we do, it's, it's extremely stressful and prolonged and being under that much stress for that much time, along with other factors, can be extremely detrimental to your mental health. And so it's very important to look after it very carefully and to know how to seek help. Yes, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I'm glad to see that you're coming through the other side of it because I think that's always the the tough part of it is just, you know, knowing there's something wrong and then dealing with it. And I'm glad at least now that the conversation is happening, there's all these support mechanisms that are being put in place. Um, when I, for example, when I went off, I was lucky I was at, in Groningen in the Netherlands and they just went, you're off work, we're going to pay for your help and you come back when you're ready. And that was a godsend. If I was 20 years ago, that probably wouldn't have been around and we'd have just have to, I guess, uh, people would be suffering in silence then, which is not the way to deal with these things. Yeah, that's an amazing way that the University of Groningen dealt with that. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, that's incredible. And yeah, I mean, glad glad you came out of it and you managed to get that help. So, so one of the reasons that, uh, you know, Jacinta and I wanted to talk about this um, is, I'll, I mean, I'll throw my hat into the ring too. <laughs> uh, I was lucky. I didn't, I didn't suffer from anxiety, but then I was unlucky in that I suffered from extremely severe depression for so many years. I'm fortunate that with a lot of therapy and a lot of antidepressants <laughs> uh, amongst other drugs um, I'm very stable at the moment and, and very glad for that but it, it has been an incredible challenge and I think mine was also brought on largely by stress so I, I, I made it through my PhD and sort of first postdoc or two okay and then once I had a, a young family uh, as well as trying to maintain the, the level of work that's kind of required in our field, the cracks started to show. 
and I really, really struggled to try and juggle everything, particularly with losing sleep, uh, you know, at night. And and for me in particular, and I guess for a lot of people, uh, sleep was was definitely an incredibly important aspect. If I could get on top of my sleep, then I, I managed to cope a lot better. So yeah, I think that there's there is a lot to be said for talking about it, and and since then I've been trying to be incredibly open about it amongst my friends and colleagues, and you know pushing the the organisation to do more, and and maybe you know you can just talk a little bit about that. So you said you know Chronigan was was incredibly supportive for you, giving you time off, and even offering to pay for it. What what more can organizations and institutions do what what should they be doing in in these sorts of situations to help support students staff and others who may be struggling yeah so so from my sort of experience my i think the big issue that's that remains from from what i've seen is it's getting from that step where you see people are struggling to getting them help or identifying the people who are struggling because a lot of the time they're, they're not going to say anything. So, you know, you've got this, this, so in Pretoria here, we have a counseling unit for students and if they're feeling depressed, they'll go to the counseling unit, but for them to make that step, it's, it's the big, big part. So I think it's difficult definitely to, to keep track of everyone or, or every student and, but knowing or trying to work out when people are suffering and it might be mental health related is is the first step because i guess the earlier that you can catch it the earlier you can address those problems so in my case you know my my anxiety was building up over over months beforehand i was going into work for 14 15 hours a day and i wouldn't notice this is the weekend and and i'd be withdrawing from social interactions i'd be withdrawing from doing stuff that actually makes me less stressed which for me my i saw daniel yours was sleep mine is like exercise so i i go and play sports and that will cause me cause me to relax and yeah i think institutions need to somehow get some mechanism to to see these warning signs or get some people there who can just check in on, on on folks. So, for example, in Pretoria, we're we're about to do buddy systems here. So, when a new student comes in, they get assigned a, a academic or, or an older student who is not related to their project. Who just says, "Hey, every month, are you okay?" And if they say yes, then it's fine. But them knowing that they have that avenue and they're not going to be judged, I think, is is key for this. But I guess with all of this, it's the same thing doesn't work for everyone. And I'd, I'd like to hear your views on this as well. Um, it'd be great to know. Yeah, I also had quite a good experience with the astronomy department at the University of Cape Town. My supervisors and head of department were extremely supportive. I was able to, I'm a good communicator. Well, I think I'm a good communicator. And I was able to tell them sort of what was going on with me and what I thought was happening and what I needed. And so they were able to give me the help that I needed in terms of, you know, reassuring me that it's okay to take time off and, you know, to put myself first. Um, that's sort of what I needed was the reassurance and kind of the permission almost to do that. Um, so, but I, but I do also worry about people who aren't able to express that clearly and how the supervisors or the colleagues or the department or their institution reacts to that so I think part of it is education in 
in basic mental health first aid, really. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, in, in terms of me and my thoughts on it. So it's great to hear both of you had good experiences. I, I feel like mine wasn't that good in in the work environment. I was very fortunate that I had a couple of friends around, <laughs> just into actually being one of them, who was able to support me and push me in the direction of getting getting help and putting myself first. So I ended up taking a couple of weeks off. I took two weeks off in one of the bad patches. But the the bad patches continued for probably over two years. And it, it was sort of constantly building up and, and, you know, sort of came in waves. So So since then, I've actually pushed really hard on the organization to do better. I attended a a management course over the last year and one of the the requirements of the course was a year-long project on something within the the broader national research foundation that could improve you know the organization as a whole and myself and a, a colleague chose mental health and we you know we obviously couldn't solve the entire organization of, of one and a half thousand employees mental health challenges but and actually the nrf does offer very good services you know there is free counseling for those that wish to to use it but what we found and we did do a survey was that people don't i mean people don't take up those services for various reasons and one of the main ones being that they're scared of of what their bosses will think um, and that it will negatively affect their career and it'll negatively affect their relationship with their colleagues and you know in in my experience I do feel a little bit like I mean it's very regrettable to say it but I do feel like it did it it did negatively affect some of my relationships at work you know people think differently of you particularly when they don't understand what this is and, and what it means so yeah our project we tried to focus on management in particular because you know it, there, there are studies and we can link to the studies in the show notes that have shown that training like Jacinta mentioned for management has a massive impact on the well-being of the organization and and the, their reportees and it's very highly impactful and and this is what you you mentioned too was it's it's identifying that so it's having somebody within the organization and a manager is, is a good one because they are monitoring your performance. Um, and if they do start to see some changes, rather than you know trying to whip you into shape, they can engage with you and, and try and figure out what's going on and whether you do need help. And I think it's just a sort of change in mindset that needs to come. Uh, and I, I, you know, and it, we're, we're all in an academic environment. And, you know, I would hope that in an academic environment, it would be accepted a bit more readily i'm not sure what it's like in a corporate environment but i imagine when there's millions of dollars at stake it's sometimes more difficult to be forgiving and 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 let people take time off to look after themselves but but i don't know i'm not you know that's just speculation but yeah i think that for me definitely the the training and the training of of managers or supervisors is hugely impactful because it, it allows people the space to seek the help they need. So Jack, sort of with all of that in mind, what can people actually do to help themselves and to help others? 
when they identify that there is a mental health issue? Yeah, so with regards to, you know, identifying these stresses, I think that's the first thing for also people to self-help themselves where they, you know, I'm going to say this now, I'm not a clinical psychologist. My doctorate is in astrophysics, so please everyone take this with a pinch of salt because it might work for you, but it might not work for other people. And I think the main thing is once you've identified identified that stress, it, is it becoming a repetitive thing? So I think as Daniel had said, is you know his ways of getting worse. Uh, I had the same where I was working more and more and just retreating from all social interaction. And then as soon as that happens, it's you know instantly finding who are the contact points. Is there counselling at work? Is there counselling? Does your medical aid cover this? And that's one thing that I found in South Africa is that medical aid sometimes doesn't cover trips to the psychologist. Uh, so for context, recently, I kind of slipped back into this anxiety last, well, two years ago, because my dad passed away very quickly. And I was a bit like, it didn't affect me until three months later. And I was just, you know, not sleeping at night and, and waking up all the time. And I was like, does my medical aid cover this? And it didn't. And so things like this, because, you know, if you chopped your arm off, people would treat it a little bit differently when there's something wrong in your head because they don't see that physical difference. And I think, as Daniel has said, this is how people's mindset treats mental health should be the same as how they treat a normal illness. So I think for, for people listening here, I think, the main thing to do now, even if you're not feeling depressed now, is to find those contact points. You know, where are you covered? Is there free counselling? Is there counselling at work or anything like this? And then that means that when you're in that rut and you know exactly where to go and where to get help. And I think the key thing about it is also to make sure that the people who you would see as your, your closest friends are know about how you're feeling and be honest with them about it because... Yeah, we all have those friends who you think you can say anything to and you should use them because I'm sure you do the same for them. And those are the, the people that, you know, help get you through this. And I think you both have attested to this with your closest confidants, uh, uh, the people who are there to help you get through all of these these difficult times. Thanks, Jack. And I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about your father and I hope that you are doing okay now. So I think that, you know, one of the things that I've kind of felt or or maybe learned is the value in preventative, you know, therapy and, and counseling too. So I'm, I'm not sure it applies to all medical, medical aids in South Africa, but I think it should. There is something called prescribed minimum benefits that a medical aid should provide. Uh, I'm not sure it, it's always the case, particularly for uh, for foreigners. But, you know, I did find that the, the minimum that you know, we're on a hospital plan, which is a sort of minimum medical aid, uh, but they still are obliged to cover 15 visits to a therapist or psychiatrist a year. So I've been leaning pretty hard on that. I'm doing really well these days, but I still like to go <laughs> have a check in, see how things are going. And, you know, even if it's just talking about my running injury to my therapist, it's, it's still helpful. And it's a good way to just check in with you know how you're doing and before anything does get out of hand so i think that that too is a something which maybe isn't 
widely accepted. You know, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, our anxiety, our depression, and how bad it got before we sought help. And, you know, I think that if we could normalize having a therapist, even if you, I mean, you don't have to go every week, but like somebody you check in on once a month, and you just, you know, they know how you're doing, and they know where you are. And you don't have to do that, you know, you don't have to wait until you're really struggling before you do that. You can you can start now and, you know, the the therapist doesn't have to talk about your childhood or your parents or all of the trauma you've you've gone through. You like that's a very sort of you know, Hollywood view of, of what therapy is. Like I said, you can just talk about what happened yesterday, like what's going on, what are some of your stresses and maybe how you can deal with them a little bit better. And then, yeah, you know, like I said, sleep for me, also exercise for me. I run, I run a lot and, you know, I've, I've been injured now for over a year. I had an operation last year and that's been very difficult for me. I've had to work really, really hard on my mental health with not having running as an outlet for me. So, you know, it, it's, that's a physical ailment which is affecting my mental health. And I think that, you know, people can, can recognize that that's, that's part of it. We're a whole being and, and everything is kind of interconnected. So, yeah, I think that's my, my thoughts on it. I guess sort of we're speaking about uh, mental health in academia and astronomy because that's, you know, the the area that we are all in and the area related to this podcast. And But, of course, many of the things that we're talking about relate to anyone, anywhere involved in anything. But specifically within kind of astronomy and academia, what are the aspects that would contribute towards poor mental health? Because I, I do think that our field of work is is quite difficult in terms of coping mentally. So I think the first thing that, that's key to, to put any perspective postgrads is that, you know, it's not we do amazing things every day. You know, we're using these premier telescopes, building and making these new discoveries. And while academia can be incredibly rewarding, you know, you, you get these press releases that come out showing these amazing galaxies, amazing pictures, and we're, we're discovering about how the universe works. I think the big thing with, with academia and its difficulties to mental health is the fact that I guess, at least on, on my opinion, it'd be nice to hear both your opinions on this, is that often the responsibility is self-owned. So you put that responsibility on you. So you want to be able to do everything. And often people don't know how to say no, so they end up being overworked, doing the job of three people at once. The other thing as well is that you've always got this sort of pressure and and this is related to the responsibility so you, you do your master's degree and you've kind of got to own that project and you've got to get it finished it's it, yes your supervisor also feels that pressure but they've been through that so you know you're the one who needs to get that degree so for me when i went off work it was that pressure which which got to me that that time pressure for me was i had a year left and i just broke down and couldn't do anymore i, I found some issue in my work and it just like that was it I, I couldn't do anymore and i think that's why at least academia is quite prone to this because you always have these pressures and you know as you go further up you've got job insecurities and um, you're always writing grant cases and telescope proposals so I, I guess academia is a bit more of a, a roller coaster for me that can 
make these kind of extreme emotions and also get into bad habits. As Daniel has said, because of your injury, you stop running, but you know, people will withdraw from these other social interactions, which they think was taking up their time they could be working at, but in fact, it was looking after their mental health and other things like eating well, like people end up eating junk and that has a, can have a negative effect, but it'd be, it'd be good to hear both of your opinions on this too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think all of those things contribute significantly toward one's mental wellness. And, and also for me, it was, you know, often when you have finished your PhD and you're going to continue with academia, you're expected to do postdocs, uh, maybe one or two or a series of those. And often that involves moving country or even moving continent. And that comes with a whole range of of stresses, right? You know, change in location, change in, you know, money, relationships, friendships, your entire life. And it's a huge upheaval. And and often you're expected to do it not just once, but twice or multiple times and kind of start your life again. And that can be extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily hard. And I think that we almost talk about it in a kind of flippant way, as if this is just an expectation and a normalized thing. But it's actually a really gigantic thing. And and often our postdocs are only for, you know, between two and four years. So actually really quite short-term contracts. So I think this is also a major contributor as well as imposter syndrome, right? Where, you know, we're working at very high academic levels and it's very common to believe that you are the imposter in the room. You are the one that doesn't actually deserve to be there. You are not smart enough. You are not naturally talented enough. And this is certainly something that has plagued me for a very long time. And it's only since getting treated properly for depression, anxiety, and it also turns out ADHD, that my brain has been able to recover and my self-confidence has recovered. And of course, if you're in a spiral of imposter syndrome, lower confidence, your output is worse, you're just spiraling down and down and down. And so it's kind of like a nice way to just cut that off. (laughs) And, you know, obviously working very hard with a psychologist, a therapist, to battle those, those aspects as well from, you know, from a thoughts and emotions kind of point of view, I think has been... Um, very important. Dan, I don't know if you have anything else to add there? Yeah, of course. I think that in my sort of experience or understanding of academia, you know, I think we'll all agree we, we're kind of, I don't know what they used to call A-type. We, we're very like high-functioning individuals, which is kind of why academia appeals. We we want to really be at the, at the coalface of new research and we're used to achieving. We're used to kind of do, doing well in exams or whatever else. And then you get into an academic environment and often, you know, just not to mention the imposter syndrome, you're young, you're on new projects, you're learning constantly, and you get into situations where you really don't know what you're doing because you are at the coalface. You know, there, there aren't always textbooks telling you <laughs> telling you what, what you should be doing. Like you're doing new research, novel research often, and that kind of uncertainty makes it very difficult and there's another thing not to not to put the blame on on others or or academia but there is a a tendency within academia and i hope it's getting better for established researchers to be a little bit disparaging of of new young researchers 
Uh, I certainly experienced that. And you have your imposter syndrome already sitting in you, feeling like you're not good enough and you don't know enough. And then you occasionally have people in a conference, you know, who stand up after you've given a talk and, you know, rip you to shreds because they, they have their own insecurities and they want to prove that they're intelligent and they know what they're talking about. And they don't necessarily regard your feelings or, or are very supportive. And I think that that's, that's something which I don't know if that's unique to academia, but it's certainly something which I experienced and I know others have the fact that you, you don't necessarily feel like you're in a supportive environment always. And I think that that's something which perhaps if, you know, supervisors are more aware of mental health, they, they would be slightly better at. But again, I mean, uh, there's a lot that comes from us and the environment we're in uh, and, and our expectations of ourselves, which, which does play into this. Yeah, I agree. I think it all comes from the, you know, we have peer review for everything and you see you'll get a referee report for an article and you'll have one good comment and then 50 bad comments in there. And I think that's doesn't play into it because you're like, I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. It's like, I remember my, my very first referee report and it was literally one of the comments was, can you get a native English speaker to read this? I come from <laughs> Manchester. Uh, I know oh my, my, I know my, I know my not. Too? <laughs> yeah, it's like, do I write like I speak or something like this? So, I, and I remember this is, this is Christmas Eve in 2015 or something. And I was just like, okay. So this is how it is. And, you know, I've been used to, to being fairly good at undergrad and then you go into academia and you're doing something new and, and, you know, these sort of comments can, can get you down. And I think, as you said, as you said, Daniel, having the supervisors wary of that, but also ensuring that the supervisors instill this constant positive reinforcement in what you're doing is, is, is key to, to try and eliminate this imposter, not to make the student complacent, but to, to try and eliminate it because uh, I've got students now who are learning Python, like computer programming, they're learning how to write papers and they're trying to do research all at the same time. And that is a huge step that many of us established researchers will take that for granted. And I just have to make sure that, you know, the students are getting the positive support saying, this is great, you're doing well. Um, and I think that needs to be instilled all across academia. And that would hopefully break down some of these kind of negative barriers that, that seem to, to sometimes be instilled there. Yeah, I think that's a great point is that we have such a strong negativity bias and we almost assume that the good things are known. So we don't often readily give compliments, like give positive feedback to students and to colleagues and to, you know, anyone. We're always like, okay, well, we're helping you by giving you constructive criticism, but we forget the the positive aspect. And so the students there thinking, oh my goodness, all of my writing is terrible. And you're there thinking, no, all of your writing is great, but these are some things that you can improve. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a communications kind of issue. I don't want to give a very negative overall impression of, you know, academia and astronomy, because of course there are a lot of positive things. I think the point is just that we have to look out for the holes, which any profession and any field has and our blind spots with regards to mental health and, and certainly we can improve that. But what do you do, Jack, to make sure that you're okay mentally? How do you look after yourself? 
probably very badly. Um, no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, no, so so my sort of way is um, is ensuring that I sleep and ensuring that. So as soon as I, I had this issue in in my PhD, I've never worked a weekend since. So ensuring that I have that time off to just recharge and chill, go and see friends, do do things, uh, and I think for me that's that's definitely a key, just to make sure that you give that time for yourself. So I do I do a lot of sport. I, I sound so British saying this. I play snooker quite a lot. <laughs> um, so zero zero to to Great Britain. Um, snooker is pretty up there and and play tennis like three or four times a week and and that's really helped but also making sure that i you know you eat properly you make time to to sit with your your family so you know another thing that was my stressor during my phd and this relates to your comment just into about always moving is that i was long distance with my now wife for four and a half years um so she she's originally from Indonesia but she lived in Australia most of her life so she and she has an American accent um but yeah we were were long distance so South Africa is where we we came together and that helps immensely we were seeing each other three times a year because it was so expensive because PhD students don't get paid an awful lot and that's definitely helped is just making sure we have that time and yeah we've got our two baby dogs which are snoring in the background here so i hope you can't hear them i think yeah as i said the the key thing is to make sure that you you have time to take it out for yourself to do these things and irregardless of of how much work you have just to go and ensure that it doesn't encroach onto those other things because that equally is important and i've seen and i'm about to become a dad so i've seen that you know people's priorities definitely change when you have a kid and i'm sure daniel can attest to this Congratulations. That's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, I can certainly attest to, to your priorities changing and your your sleep being challenged. I mentioned already that sleep was a big challenge for me. And with children, it certainly became more of a challenge. I'm very fortunate that when my youngest son reached about three and he still wasn't sleeping through, uh, I, I stepped out and said, you know, I need to sleep now. <laughs> um, and my wife nobly took it on. <laughs> I can report now that he does sleep through and that the whole household is a lot happier. But yes, kids are definitely a challenge. And yeah, I mean, as you said, like reprioritizing. So I too really try very hard uh, not to work evenings or, or weekends and, you know, make that time for my family and for myself, make sure that I'm I'm running, even if I have to wake up before five o'clock like I did this morning to try and squeeze it in. It's important and it really does make you feel normal you you know uh, it's it's a form of socializing too you know running with friends or playing tennis with friends or playing snooker or or whatever you do it's not just about the sport it's about being out of your work environment amongst other people and it's incredibly refreshing and rewarding i know that you have to go soon jack to go and do your many other uh, to go give a lecture in fact but do you have any final messages for listeners before you go I guess the main thing for for all the listeners here is academia isn't all this doom and gloom that we've spoke about, but this is just identifying some of the problems. And if if you go into corporate, there are going to be these same issues. So you know we're we're doing amazing things with 
premier telescopes new discoveries all the time and people who are listening who may be thinking about going into academia and doing research there is all the good side of things there is the good supervisors who look after your mental health um so you know Jacinta and myself have had good experience with good experiences my supervisors was ex extremely supportive um over that period and also there's these mechanisms that are in place, as Daniel has said, with the, you know, he's changing this from the top down and, and people on, on the other end are going to change it from the bottom up and mental health is becoming accepted. So for those who may be listening here and, and some of the things have echoed with them, you know, they've seen signs in their own workplace or their degrees, just don't be afraid, go and get help or talk to someone close to you or even just go and find that number so that when you feel that the time is right is to go and get help because there's no point you know in feeling this way for too long yeah. for me at least that I look back on those times and I was like why didn't I get it earlier and it's because I, I didn't know the signs so you know, knowing the numbers and knowing the things that you're covered for or, or the therapists and, and, and having those on hand for when you feel it gets too much is key and making sure that someone there is out for you is definitely the way forward to go. So, yeah, I guess that's my, my message for people and, and just make sure that you have a good work-life balance. Don't let it dominate your life. There's more to life than work. <sighs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I echo that, you know, early intervention is kind of key. And I guess I, I wish that I hadn't waited until it got so bad that I had to do something about it. I wish I had kind of taken it more seriously earlier. Like I did take it seriously, but I think that I didn't necessarily believe myself. And so it's important to to listen to your body, to listen to your mind, to validate that and to do something about it, um, trust yourself and to try and work work through the prejudice because even the most open-minded people I find still take quite a long time to come around to the idea of seeing somebody to help their mental health, even though you wouldn't really hesitate to, to go and see a doctor if there was something physically wrong with you. So that's definitely something I would yeah encourage and learning about the science behind it for me as a scientist that made it a lot more real and a lot more valid you know learning a little bit about the neuroscience and it's also it's absolutely fascinating but I'll rant for a long time so I'm going to stop there Dan did you have any final questions or messages <laughs> yeah no just thanks so much for joining us for sharing your experiences and being willing to talk so openly it really is greatly appreciated it's something that we should definitely all be doing more of and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm glad to be part of this podcast. Um, well, I don't know whether I'll listen to myself, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where you're like, I sound much different than you do in your head. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. Th thank you so much, both. And, and thank you as well for, for sharing your experiences, because, you know, being able to, to do this conversation, I think, is you know, the least thing we can do to to at least help some of the listeners maybe here who's, who could be struggling and just to make them comfortable that they're they're not alone in this. I think that's the, the prime thing. And, and to not feel bad that they've got into this either. I think that's one of the key things is to be kind to yourself as well. Thank you so much, Jack. Thanks, Jack. And all the best. Good luck with the little one. Cheers. Thanks a lot. I'm going to 
going to bank up my sleep, but I don't think it works well. <laughs> <laughs> It was so awesome to have a chat with Jack um, about that and to hear him very openly sharing his experiences. I think that is just so, so important because I think so many of us are going through the same thing and we just don't realize that each other are. And so we keep silent, but it would actually be so much more helpful if we could actually just open up and help each other. And I guess a lot of the reason why we don't talk about it so openly is because of this, you know, stigma and shame. But I'm so glad that that's starting to kind of dissolve a little bit. And in fact, I feel very confident talking about this. I don't feel shamed at all because actually overcoming mental illness is the biggest achievement of my life. I am so proud of myself for doing that. And I am so happy with who I am right now. I feel better than I have for like nearly 20 years, the vast majority of my life. And so although it was a very, very tough journey, I'm in some ways kind of almost grateful because I'm so glad that I know what I know now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of you too, Jacinta. But then also very proud of myself and I, I, I feel exactly the same. Having been through what I've been through, there were obviously times when, you know, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But having come through the other side, I am incredibly grateful for what I've been through. I've had a, I have a much better understanding of myself. I have a much better understanding of others and uh, a lot more empathy. And while I'm still on antidepressants, I'm feeling in, in the last year or so, happier than I felt maybe ever, uh, but definitely in a long time. And that quality of life is just incredible. You know, it, it allows me to enjoy all of my other achievements and every other aspect of my life that much more. So yeah, also incredibly proud of myself for, for coming through this. And yeah, choosing happiness. And I'm very proud of you too. Thank you, Jacinta. <laughs> It's also important what we were talking about, like with early intervention, because although, you know, we're very happy with where we are now, had we known what we know now, perhaps we would never have had to go through those things. Perhaps we wouldn't have had to go through such a tough time if we'd had the knowledge to reach out and access psychologists, to reach out and talk to psychiatrists and mental health experts. And, you know, I wish that also that I had not been so prejudiced against medication I'm, I'm also on antidepressants and um, I'm very happy with them, actually. I think that our minds are so incredibly powerful. I am absolutely in awe of them. And our conscious mind is only one tiny aspect of it. And there's, there's this depth there that we just, we just don't understand yet. Neuroscience and psychology, we just don't really understand it yet. And with great power comes great responsibility. And so, yeah, we really have to look after our minds because they are extremely powerful. <laughs> yeah, they sure are. And it's a weird realization, actually. We're astronomers, so we're used to the unknown. I think we know a lot more about the universe than we do about the human mind. Yeah, I think we uh, actually do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's a very hard thing to understand. And, you know, just these interactions, how things work, the, the chemical reactions that are going on. And I too, I mean, I, I'm very happy on medication. I think that there's no reason for me to come off it. If I'm stable, if I'm happy, then I'm, I'm more, than, more than happy to continue feeling that. I don't feel the need to, to try and wean myself off and struggle through. 
I, I choose happiness and it's it's great I'm I'm not embarrassed about that at all no and I found actually that you know at first I was a bit worried about opening up to people talking about it because you know you always fear rejection but I found that once you talk about it people are actually really grateful to talk to you about those things you know everybody everybody has feelings and emotions and struggles even if they deny it to you and deny it to themselves like every single person on the planet does have them and so it's important to kind of acknowledge that and look after that after yourself I mean another thing I just wanted to mention is that it's okay to be not okay even though your life is okay (laughs) do you know what I mean (laughs) so like I had I had a lot of guilt over the fact that my life was great it really was great. I had the job I wanted. I had financial security. I had great friends. You know, my life was really good. And yet I felt so kind of at best apathetic. You know, it's, it's, it's this term called anhedonia, which is part of depression where you don't, we actually can't feel anything. (laughs) You you just don't really feel much joy or, you know, things are just gray and kind of numbing. And it's okay to feel that even though your life seems great and 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 so you don't have to feel guilty over feeling that you know your brain is an organ like any other organ in your body it can get sick and it's not your fault and it's not necessarily any particular event that happened it's not necessarily any any particular environmental factor it can be so many things it can be related to gut health it can be related to genetics and all of these things combined which we don't really understand well can lead to mental illnesses so it's important not to blame yourself when it comes to to these sorts of things I mean I had three months off work completely to recover plus you know it took me nearly a year to be able to get back to full-time work and so again I would stress like if you can prevent yourself from getting to that point please do because <laughs> I don't want anyone else to have to go through that yeah absolutely and I, th- I think you know we, we did mention preventative care and I think that you know look after yourself there are avenues to seek help and you know we'll post some some links of places you can go and seek help if you are struggling or if you need to speak with someone. And I think that uh, at the end of this episode, I think we can definitely do your new little addition to the show. How are you, Jacinta? Oh, yes, that is that did actually work out really well, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Our new tradition for ending the show. Um, thank you for asking, Daniel. I am, I'm okay. I'm a little stressed at the moment, to be honest, um, a little bit kind of on the edge of burning out quite a few stresses in my life at the moment which individually quite small but add up to you know a lot and and a lot of things that I can't personally do anything about sort of not in my control and so I'm just managing that and uh, making sure I do a lot of self-care tomorrow I've booked in for a splashing out on a massage and my mom oh, very nice. yeah my mum bought me a um, a facial for Christmas which I've never had one before so I booked that in for tomorrow so just like looking after myself which is going to do me well for it's like investing in myself in my future productivity which I think is really important how are you yeah, I'm, I'm well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you're doing well. Yeah, uh, I'm also well. Um, my, my running's going well again. My, my injury is healing and I'm feeling a lot better about that, which is is very important, as I mentioned, to my mental health. It's a huge part of my social life and, you know, being able to see my friends and run with them is very important to me. 
work is stressful as usual and busy. But again, managing that, trying to take the time I need. And I've got quite good at saying no <laughs> these days. And also just quite good at not replying to certain emails. <laughs> I, I apologize if, you, if you, <laughs> you're one of On those. On the receiving end of that. <laughs> or the non-receiving end, as, as it may be. Uh, but yes, I, I, you know, I'm trying to prioritize my, myself and you know, do as much as I can without negatively affecting my my health yeah absolutely all right so i think that's it for today's episode yeah thanks very much for listening and we hope you'll join us again on the next episode of the cosmic savannah you can visit our website thecosmicsavannah.com where we'll have the transcript links pictures and other stuff related to today's episode you can follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at cosmic savannah that's savannah spelled s-a-v-a-n-n-a-h you can also find us on youtube where audio only episodes are uploaded with closed captions which can be auto-translated into many different languages, including Afrikaans, Isikosa and Isizulu. And now you can also follow along on our website with the script, along with the transcript. Special thanks today to Dr. Jack Radcliffe for speaking with us. Thanks as always to our social media manager, Sumari Hatting, and our audio editor, Jacob Fahn. Also to Mark Olnut for music production, Michal Wercek for photography, Carl Jones for astrophotography, Susie Karras for graphic design, and Justine Crook-Manzur for transcription. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation, the South African Agency for Science and Technology and Advancement, the South African Astronomical Observatory and the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us or recommend us to a friend. And we'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah. I can't really hear you now because of the pillow. <laughs> you can't hear me at all. Because the pillow, yeah, just, yeah. Okay, how about now? Okay. You can hear me? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Yeah, ready? One, two, three. I think we nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> sure.